with us. We started out, and it's basically this idea, uh, as we were in the book of Hebrews, that uh, we all need more resolve. And the book of Hebrews kind of lays out this faith that finishes. What we said last week was resolutions are common, uh, but resolve is not. And so what we talked about a bit was this idea of a marathoner's faith, that most of us have a sprinter's faith, that we can go for a short burst, we can get into something for a little bit, but eventually it falls off. And what we're aiming for is this greater endurance. We talked in passing about this concept of hitting the wall, that marathoners have this sort of uh, metaphorical wall they hit and they have to overcome if they're going to finish the race. This week is all about that wall. Because whatever you set out to do, um, lose a few pounds in 2018 or follow Jesus more closely with your whole life, um, you are going to hit the wall. You are going to hit adversity. You're going to hit trouble. You're going to hit strife. You're going to hit a trial. You're going to hit the wall in life. And so the idea is that today we'd want to uh, look into the scripture to see what it says about what it means to be resolute, to overcome uh, the walls that face us in life and to truly have uh, that faith that finishes. Because the difference between success and failure is not often talent, but perseverance. And so what we're going to do today as we look into the scripture is if you're uh, a regular around here, you know we don't spend a ton of time parsing Greek verbs. Um, we just try to get to it and get through it. And yet today there are four really important words in the original text that we're going to look into that I think are going to illuminate what this is and really help us figure out where we're going. So I'm going to start reading in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Pick up where we left off last week. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, my son does not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son, son who, whom he receives. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and respe we respected them. Shall we not more be the subject of the Father of spirits and live? For uh, they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the first thing we want to see, uh, we want to remember where we came from. So last week, verse 1 and 2, the, the idea was... Uh, the writer says, run with endurance the race set before you. Run with endurance. He uses this metaphor of the games, this race, and that we're all charged to, to actually get in the game, to start. That you can't win the race if you don't start, so we get in. Verse 4 then says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So we're still in sort of this metaphor, right? So what we, what we do, Western people, is we take that and we're like, oh, this race metaphor. And then he says, in your struggle against sin, and we immediately go back into like this literal world. Well, this is a continuation. And so we have to understand what this means. In your struggle, the word here in Greek, the first word we're going to learn is antagonizomai. And if you hear antagonize in that, you've heard half of it. If you've heard agonize, you've heard all of it. And so this, this phrase, in your struggle, in verse 4, literally means this is going to be agonizingly hard. The, the, the struggle of life, the struggle of the race is agonizing. It's also literally saying that you haven't yet given your life or your blood for your faith just yet. 
And so it, it, this metaphor is happening where he says, you know what, you're in this race, but you've not yet bled for the, for the race you're in. And you're going, oh, okay, that's a neat metaphor. And it's that, but it's something else. Because there's this intimation that there's a price to be paid. That our faith requires blood. And so on this two different levels, this incredible thing is happening. As first, this is a Christ reference, right? That there is one who has paid the price. There is one who has blood has been shed for this. And yet at the same time, what about us? And so what commentators will tell you is there's this really neat double meaning here. Because Paul is using this athletic metaphor, and, and he's talking about running the race, and there's a cloud of spectators, and, and there's witnesses all around us. And in the day, in the time of the writing, the main event of the day was the pentathlon. This was the ultimate competition. Pentathlon, penta meaning five. And so there were five events. We have a decathlon now in the Olympics. There's a biathlon coming up in the Winter Olympics, which is multiple people I know that's their favorite event in the whole world because it's the most bizarre thing. It's cross-country skiing and then fire a gun, which totally makes sense, right? Brushing your teeth and running the hurdles. Done. That's an event, right? So whatever. So there's a biathlon coming. You'll watch it next month and you'll wonder why they chose to put those two things together. But the pentathlon was what was important back then. The pentathlon was, uh, there was a run, there was a jumping event, there was a discus, a javelin, and the fifth one was something uh, alternatively called, it was like wrestling or boxing, but often called the struggle. And what they would wear on their hands, these people, they would, they were pugilists. If you know what that word means, that's what they called the, the, the person in the ring. And they would wrap their hands in thick leather bands, and on their knuckles they would wear a thick layer of leather as well. And so it was a two-part thing. One, it was protection. So when you got punched, you got punched in leather, not on uh, flesh. But the other is that thick leather band, that inflicted some damage on your opponent. It was brutal, and it was a bloody end to the pentathlon. The implication in the scripture as it talks through this idea is, is have you really gotten into the race? And if you're into the games, if you're part of this competition, are you willing to go all the way through to finish it? Because the run, it's the run. And the javelin and the discus and the jumping and the, like, okay. But the one that was to be feared, the one that only the greatest competitors finished was the last one, the struggle, the boxing. And the question being implied in the scriptures, are we willing, if we're going to start the race, are we willing to finish it? To get through all of the things that lead up to the final event, which may actually cost us. The implication is, if you're not willing to do that, then maybe you're not willing to join the competition at all. In verse 11, it says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the second word we're going to learn is this word train. The word for train there is gymnazo, where we get gymnasium. What the passage is saying is that the difficulties and the struggles of life, the difficulties and the struggles of having faith, they will overwhelm us at time and they will come at a personal cost. And ultimately what that is, is gymnazo. It's training. The struggle is training. The difficulty is training. The trial is training. And so what he's saying is the pentathlon, the struggle at the end of the pentathlon, that's just part of the training. Because the journey is the destination, and if you've heard it said before a million times, the destination is, is the journey. So we are then to practice faith as the exercise for living faith. We are to practice faith as the training for being faithful. 
Because the struggle against sin will bring blood. And so to train us to be better for the lifelong fight for goodness and light, we are then to get in and train. What you see as you start reading through this passage with these eyes is you see that what, what's really being said by the writer of Hebrews is that the exposure of our weakness is the path to our strength. And that's counterintuitive. What we want to do is just pretend that we're strong. And what this is saying over and over again is the exposure to weakness is the path to your strength. That it's the very struggle itself that trains you to be ready to take on the struggle. Like, what is exercise? If you think about it, really. Like, not what do you do, but what, what, is, the, what is the actual physical function of exercise when you're, when you're doing it? It's self-made difficulty is all it is. Anything you do, like, just for exercise, when you go work out, it's self-made difficulty. We were in someone's house last night, and they had this rack of weights. There's the five-pound weight and the 15-pound weight, and then there were weights that were bigger than I have ever lifted in my life, you know. And it gets up, and there's like 35 pounds, 50-pound weights. What are you doing? Who, you know, where's the forklift that you move that with, right? And, and what I was thinking was, what's the point of having weights that are too heavy to pick up? It's training, The struggle is the workout itself. The difficulty in lifting the weight is the workout itself. In the exposure of one's weakness is one's strength. So like my regiment, I'm your regular Charles Atlas, if you couldn't tell. And if you know who Charles Atlas is, that says something about you. Like I do sit-ups, and then I do push-ups, and then I get on the treadmill. That's kind of it. Like, not that inventive. I don't really know what weights are. That's why I played basketball in high school and not football. They said, would you please come out for the football team? I was like, no, basketball, we get to just run around and they don't make us lift weights, so it's cool. That's me. Sit-ups, push-ups, treadmill. That's all I do. But if you think about it, a push-up is introduction of opposition. A push-up is, it's easy to stand there, or it's even easier to lay there, but it's not as easy to push your flabby body off the floor. And the first one is relatively easy. The 37th, Not as much. The arms start shaking and you go, hey, this is where I feel pretty weak. Only to turn around and say, now, lift your flabby body off the floor this way, right? And the first sit-up is not hard. Anybody can do one. The 37th sit-up, you're kind of wondering, why did I ever start this? They're getting harder as they go. And those are the ones that work. If you did one sit-up, it doesn't do any good. If you do 30 maybe. One push-up, oh well, 30, now you got something. 50, 100. Because as they get progressively harder, as as you're more and more exposing your weakness, I am too weak to continue, I do not have the strength to keep going, it is those that make the difference. That's where your muscle is being stretched, that's where your muscle is being torn and reformed and grown, is not in the first, but in the 30th, not in the first, but in the 50th. It is in the exposure of our weakness in that moment that the strength begins to grow. Which, which brings this counterintuitive truth back to home. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Every setup is harder. I feel weaker, and the reality is every setup, I get stronger. That's how exercise works. And so the invitation from the writer of Hebrews is to see our life like a race, like the pentathlon. So when difficulty comes, when struggle comes, when trial comes, we have to look at it as the introduction and the exposure of this weakness in my life. I was not prepared for this trial is the invitation to greater strength and growing through it. Because when it feels like we're getting weaker, when our faith is weaker, our courage is weaker, 
my ability to carry on or scale the next wall, when all those things start to feel like they're waning and I just don't know if I want to keep going, the biblical perspective looks at it and knows that what feels like growing weakness is actually and always growing strength. And so life is antagonizomai. Life is this agonizing struggle at times. And yet there's a plan. Tim Keller says that when we allow this truth into our heart, it changes everything. It, it makes things matter again. But we have to understand that life is hard and that struggle will come. And he says most of it's about expectations. As he was talking through this, this made a ton of sense to me. He said the majority of pain from life is not really from the pain itself, but it's not knowing how to process the pain in the moment. It's the shock, the confusion, the self-pity, the anxiety. That's what creates uh, the most of the pain. That life events, yes, those will get us, but the thing that keeps us there is that lack of expectation that this is what's going to happen anyway. And as a pastor, this made a ton of sense to me. I make a lot of hospital visits. And what you learn really quickly when you make a lot of hospital visits is that no one looks glamorous in a hospital bed. Anybody who's been in one is like, oh gosh. And every time I walk into a room, I almost feel like I should apologize because when you walk into someone's hospital room, they almost always apologize for how they look. Like they had any role in putting the gown on or having the issue or falling or, you know, like, like you have a health issue and you're in the hospital. Serious enough that you're in the hospital, one of the first things people say is, oh, sorry I look like this. I didn't get the chance to do my hair. And I'm like, you're in the hospital. Or, you know, this is the only gown they had and they have these things on me, so it's kind of showing, you know, and you're like, I get it. Like my expectations are pretty, pretty clear. But, but people, they just don't look great, especially like coming out of surgery. That's a tough look. And what you learn, what I learned in South Africa, doing daily hospital visits with our pastor there and, and running through uh, the AIDS ward and running through the cancer ward and running. I mean, you just, you get, the, you learn, you go, you know what? The first time I saw it, it shocked me. Seeing somebody come out of surgery, you're like, oh gosh. And then you grow an expectation that, you know what, they do look a little green and their hair is going to be must and things are going to be a little sideways. And there's tubes coming out of strange places and there's beeps happening everywhere. And what you, what you learn with expectation is that's how you're supposed to look when you come out of surgery. Without that, you know, it's horrifying. And as a pastor, you'd be performing last rites over somebody who just had like a root canal. Because, wow, why do you look like that? You're on the verge, you know? But expectations train me to go, this is how it's supposed to look. So when the scripture tells us last week, don't lose heart, don't grow weary, it's saying be ready. It's a forewarning, don't lose heart and don't grow weary is to say there will be times that you're going to want to lose heart, there will be times that you're going to feel weary by the weight of this world that you live in, but be ready for it because it's coming. Have expectations that this is coming. Have expectations that difficulty are part of the living. Have expectations that the struggle is part of this life. Because preparation is the foundation of resolve. Preparation is the foundation of resolve. When we know it's coming, we deal with it differently, don't we? If I told you tomorrow is going to be 85 degrees and sunny you would dress differently as a result. You would not be surprised. If I told you tomorrow it's going to be negative 85 and snowy, which is about what it feels like, you wouldn't go outside in shorts and flip-flops. Preparation immediately becomes the foundation of resolve. I can, I can be resolute in the face of anything because I know about it. 
so it is with difficulty in life. Which brings us back to this idea that we saw multiple times as we read through the scripture of discipline, 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 discipline. Verses 5 through 11, the word for discipline there, it's our third word of the day, is paideia. When you hear the word discipline, what do you think? I asked my wife this, so I'm going to point her out because it's everybody's answer when I've ever asked this question. So when you hear about discipline, what do you think? She's like, punishment. You discipline your kid when they do something wrong. I said, yeah, that's what I thought. And in rolling through the scripture over and over, this word paideia is the word where we get pediatrics, orthopedics. In English, discipline basically means punishment. But in the original language, when this is written, this discipline word actually means flourishing. So how do you read it different if it says, hey, when you encounter discipline and a good father disciplines and you're going, oh, yeah, God's going to spank me for this and he's going to hit me for that and I got a timeout for this. Because I'm just not good enough, and this is what God wants to do. He just wants to discipline, discipline, discipline. Punish, punish, punish is what we hear. And you have to reformulate that, and if you run it through the actual language, it isn't saying that at all. It's going, when we run into struggle, God doesn't want to punish us. He wants to give us flourishing. He wants to lead us to flourishing. He wants to offer us flourishing over and over. Last year, we got uh, flu shots as a family. This was a, a good decision that was a mistake, if it can be both at the same time. Because we took our daughters, it was like their first time to meet the pediatrician. Who, pediatrician, their name means to bring about flourishing. And so we take them in, and, and usually you, you take two kids in two separate rooms because a shot is a little bit of a thing. Um, it can create some trauma, there can be some tears, and we both know that our five-year-old is tougher than our nine-year-old. That's just the truth. And she was the one who, when you give her a shot when she's little, she didn't cry. She looked at you funny. She's like, what's your problem? And then she takes the sucker, and you go, and you're done. And so we're like, our great idea is we're going to give her the shot first, and she's the tough one. And then that'll show the other one, who, for some reason, has weird anxiety all of a sudden about a shot, and she's going to be nine. It's going to be okay. So the, we don't tell the five-year-old you're getting a shot. We just give it to her. Like, go ahead and, you know, we'll distract her. You give her the shot. Our mistake. So she goes, hey! You know, Ow! And then she starts crying, and then she's developed a dramatic streak, and then it really gets ugly. And then we're like, well, man, I'm glad that's over. And we look over at our uh, then eight-year-old, and she's like, oh, no. And she starts doing this thing like, you're not doing that to me. And she can't even control it at this point, and she's horrified if she heard me saying this. So no, okay. And, and so the, the nurse walks up, and you know, this giant, shiny needle is coming at her, and she just starts screaming. And we're like, hi, we're brand new patients. These are our children. This one is crying and that one is screaming. We're going to be changing practices very soon. And so they have to give her a shot and she's screaming and she's crying. And then they're like battling for volume supremacy, you know. And my wife and I just look at her like, okay, thanks. You know, I was hoping she'd be like, don't, just don't even pay. Just leave. Just please never come back. And I was going to be like, sweet, you know, free shots. But it didn't work. The pediatrician is administering something good. The shot is good. Is it, does it feel good in the moment? No. Is it for her flourishing? Yes. It's not punishment. And so sometimes we have to reformulate the way we see the world. We have to, like I go into a hospital room, we have to go into the world going, this is going to hurt at times. This is not always going to work out the way we hoped. It's not always going to feel like we want it to feel. It's going to hurt. 
And maybe, just maybe, the hurt is not a punishment for something we did wrong, but it's the flu shot. It's the, the flourishing given to us so that we might get through another day down the road. Reality is, I'm an imperfect parent with imperfect discipline. And each of us are that. And so we project onto God our own past experience with what the word discipline even means. So if you had a bad experience with religion or a bad experience with a parent, if you have to shake off some weird associations you have with that, you've got to shake that off. And we can't project onto God something that someone has done to us because when God disciplines, he is not doing so as a form of punishment alone. He's doing so as a way to bring flourishing into our lives. God disciplines for our good so that we can share in his holiness, it says. That his discipline is designed to draw us in to his presence and his holiness. So Tim Keller says this way, when he summarized that whole idea, he says, Can you see that the sufferings and difficulties God allows to come into your life, can you see them as a way of getting his greatness and his glory deep into your soul? Can you see the sufferings and difficulties God allows to come into your life as his way of getting his greatness and glory deep into your soul? Like the next trial in front of you might just be the flu shot for the thing coming further down the road. And if you can see it that way, if you can expect it that way, then you walk into that room with different eyes, you walk into that room with different experience, and you come out of it just a little bit closer to where you're designed to be. Verse 7 says, it is for pedeia, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for your flourishing. That suffering is not good. But it is for your good. Here's how we miss it. Verse 5 and 6 of the passage that we read is actually Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And that says, don't take God's discipline lightly. And there's two ways we do that. We either, uh, we take the stiff upper lip because that's what we were trained to do as kids. And when, when stuff comes upon us, we just feel like we're going to get a stiff upper lip and act like it doesn't bother us and just keep walking. And so when we don't recognize the reason for our discipline as the enemy, the reason God is training us up, the reason God is, is providing this to give us this flourishing is not because God takes great pleasure in being the enemy and giving us hardship. It's because there is an enemy and God wants us to be overcomers. But the, the challenge is, if we'll just get a stiff upper lip and be like, I'm just going to will my way through this and get to the next moment, what we end up doing is assigning to God what isn't God's. God is not the enemy. Any more than the parent who takes you into the doctor's office to get the flu shot is the enemy. But you inflicted pain upon my life, mom, dad. So you must be the enemy, and I no longer trust you because that hurt. And that's not, that's not how it works. So we have to be careful when we encounter struggle not to assign the trouble to God. The flu is evil, the doctor isn't. The flu is evil, the parent isn't. Your struggle might be evil. It might be coming from somewhere that's dark. That doesn't mean God is. also says don't grow weary and faint. Don't lose heart. And this is the other side. One side just presses through. The other has this classic sort of giving up. I can't see the reason for my struggle, so I'm just going to quit. I'm out. And that's no better. I'm going to lose my will to fight altogether because this was hard. How do we flourish in it then? What's the flourishing piece? The flourishing is humility and obedience. 
Humility and obedience combined are the kind of the basis for perseverance. It has to be like a child to a parent where we abandon our arrogance and we begin to find obedience. Greek, last word, obedience. Hypomeno, which just means don't budge. We think obedience where you walk the dog and the dog does what you want it to. Or you think a kid, obedience, clean your room and they clean the room. This word used here for obedience means don't budge. Once you know what truth is, once you know who God is, once you know where that line is, once you know that God is for you and he is good and he is just and he is loving and grace emanates from him, once you know that, obedience means don't budge from there. Don't budge from prayer. Don't budge from the word. Don't budge from listening for the Holy Spirit in your life. In difficulty, don't run, but hold firm. Great preacher John Owen had this illustration. It was about sailing. Sailing and obedience. It says that when a big wind comes up and you're sailing, there's a temptation to drop the sail, go into the hold of the ship and wait it out. Just ride out the storm. The reality is when you do that, you become tossed aside and you, you're now off course. What you actually should do, John Owen says, is by practicing obedience, by holding firm, by refusing to budge, you don't drop the sail and go under decks. You hold steady, you hold the wheel or the rudder, you leave the sail up. And when the storm is over, you'll actually realize that you'll have reached your destination sooner than had you gone below decks in the first place. Because that wind becomes a wind that propels you where you're going even faster. That storm is something that might carry you further than you would have gone otherwise. The storm is for your flourishing, is what he was saying. But only if you see it that way and react accordingly. The storm can be for your flourishing, but only if we see it that way and react accordingly. If we are the kind of people who pull the sail down and go under decks and just wait for it to go, we'll have missed the flourishing offered in the storm. And if anyone in here is honest, I would say when I go through those storms, that's not my first thought. My first thought is not like, hey, God's sending a cool breeze to get me further down the road. What I'm saying is, really, God, now? And so what the scripture is challenging us to do is to reframe the way we see the world and to be ready. Perseverance is the 37th sit-up. I know this is going to hurt. It's for my good. Perseverance is the right expectations. Perseverance is the flu shot. Perseverance is seeing the storm as wind in your sails. Perseverance is seeing struggle as the path to God's glory penetrating our souls. So having perseverance in life is the recognition that the agonizing struggle makes you stronger. So that you don't resent it when it comes. You may not like it, but you don't resent it or, or God. And this is why some of the holiest people you meet, some of the people who you most admire and you go, gosh, I just wish I had their peace or their faith or their countenance. I wish I, I, wish I went through what they went through so that I could be like them. Because some of the holiest people you meet, some of the most peaceful people you meet are the people who've been through the biggest storms. And they've already learned this lesson. They've already walked this path. And so there's people I run across and I'm like, I don't know what you've been through, but you've been through something because you're not this way naturally. And nine times out of ten, they go, yeah, I lost this person, or yeah, we went through this struggle, or gosh, this crisis hit us, and I just learned. 
ultimately what this is all grounded in is this greater truth from last week that verse 2 said, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the scripture says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. When you think of how do I get through this, the idea is always pointed back to Christ because he's done it. He's experienced it. He knows it. And so you have to rest on him. He can guide you through the storm. Jesus endured so we could persevere. Jesus was broken so that we could be made whole. Jesus was resolute so that you and I might become resolved. Basically, Jesus is saying, I was subject to the Father. My spirit was crushed. So you could be absolutely sure that in suffering, you cannot be subject to the Father and be crushed as well, but rather subject to the Father for your flourishing. Jesus is saying, I lost God in my suffering, but in your suffering, you get God. That Jesus, in taking on our sin and our shame, experienced the fullness of separation. You and I, in taking on the struggle of this life, are actually drawn in closer. And so, the question before us is if we are going to be people that are resolute, that struggle well, that fight well, that get to the end of the race, that, that finish. Will we be people that see the world the way the scripture paints it? That no matter where you are in that pentathlon, that the struggle is always coming. It's the end. It, it's coming. Will we set our expectations as such and know that they're coming? And then once we get there, Do we rest on the person of Christ or do we get a stiff upper lip? Do we rest on the person of Christ or do we say, this is hard and I'm out? Because perseverance is acknowledging that someone has gone before us, someone has conquered this already, and that ultimately if we walk through this faithfully, if we're obedient to keep our sail in the air and our hand on the wheel, that God will give us great flourishing as a result. So we as a people then go, Lord, we don't desire struggle. We don't desire trial. We don't desire trouble in our lives, but we know that when it comes, that you are faithful and you will bring us through. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your faithfulness. Even in our community right now, as um, even in the last month, walk through trial after trial with people in this family. God, relationships in some places are in tatters. Children are wayward, disease, strikes. God, we don't desire any of that. We don't long for those things. And yet, Father, they're here. The winds of struggle, the winds of trial and tribulation, they do come and Father, even I think of the people who are walking through them acutely right now. My prayer for them specifically is that, God, you would, in small, noticeable ways, God, you would show them flourishing in the storm. Father, for those of us who think we're in clear waters and that we're through the worst of it, would you reconfigure our expectations, not to dread and worry and anxiety about what's next, Father, may we have a glorious expectation that the struggle is not evil, 
but it is training to draw us into glory, that it is uh, discipline, it is flourishing being offered to us. God, may we never be a people that run from the pain. May we be a people that learn from the pain. So Father, when you meet us in our trial, when you meet us in the struggle, in the hearts of people in this room that are going through things and no one else knows, that are holding secret sin, secret habit, that are holding news they've yet to share, that are fearful and worried, Father, I pray you would meet us in that place. And then God, use our pain and our struggle, use our overcoming, our endurance, our training, our discipline. Use those things, God, to then turn us outward, to seek out those around us in this community that are hurting, that are struggling, that have pain. And may we minister to them the way you minister to us with the extension of your grace and your beauty and ultimately your hope of eternity free from all of this. Father, may we live that eternity out now. We live in your presence and then extend your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.